Today's Bible reading comes from Mark 11, 12 to 26. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. But they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out from the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered what Jesus had, what said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, believes that, that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Okay, excellent. Thanks, Nadine, for that. And thank you, music team, for the way you've led us this morning. We genuinely appreciate it. Thank you. I want to flick the verses that Nadine read to us up on the screen, or some of them anyway, particularly those two that are there before you now. Take a good look at them. Again, and ponder and consider the sheer magnitude of what Jesus is saying there. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. I believe most people in this room this morning would say we, we believe that. We're, as Christians, we firmly believe that that's, that's true. You know, we're talking about power in prayer today. That this is true. We believe that it's absolutely true. And, and yet... On the other hand, we can count the amount of times in our lives where we have prayed. Oh, have we prayed? 
that they won't get divorced, and they did. That his attitude will change, but it didn't. That she will place her faith in Christ, but she doesn't. That I will get that job, but it went to someone else. That he will wake up out of the coma, and he didn't. How did that work? Where was the the power of prayer when we prayed this? How do we reconcile our our experience in our life of prayer with what the the, the promises are that Jesus holds out here in in staggering terms? You know, this is one of those scripture verses that you don't have to sit still long enough and realize how, how intense they are. And this morning, I mean, I, I mentioned last week that in this prayer series, we're going we're gonna to scratch where it itches. I, I think this morning we're perhaps going to um, press on where it hurts. Even, it's, it's more than that. It goes there. And, so, and that's what I want to do with it. I want us to focus on this what Jesus is saying here. How are we to understand this? How is this to shape what we pray for, what we believe our prayers can do in terms of its, its power? And the way to do that is, I think, dealing primarily with these verses, looking at two words we have to understand. Two words in, in that passage. And, and I'm indebted a bit here to John Piper, for much of what I'm going to say, although not all, I was surprised at the places God took me with this this week. Um, So, two words. First word we have to understand is the word whatever. Is Jesus writing a blank check? Is he saying, whatever you pray for, you name it, whatever. Ever, absolutely blank. And you have enough faith in that, it will be done. I, I'm, I'm going to suggest up front, no, that's, that's not a blank check. Jesus is not writing a blank check. Why not? Uh, well, there's, there's two reasons. Firstly, because I think the way we use a certain word often determines what we understand it means. Like, for instance, the word whatever. You know, I like dining out with uh, some fancy friends who like restaurants quite often and we would go to the restaurant and I would have no clue what's on the menu because, you know, I just don't know. <laughs> it's not my gig. And so when the waiters, waiters come around and they, they take the orders, they would say uh, to me, what would you like? And, I, you know, I would say I'd have whatever he's having. <laughs> and then they go, oh, right, well, now the pressure's on. Whatever does not include whatever. Whatever does not include rat poison. Uh, Whatever does not include whatever is the vegetarian option on that menu. Whatever includes whatever is on that menu and has meat on it for me, personally. You know, uh, (laughs) uh, you may be a vegetarian. I love you. It's great. Um, For you, it would be whatever is on that menu that does not have meat on it. You know, the point is that how we use words, or what we understand words to mean often, depend on how we use them. You know, in the context of this analogy with the restaurant, 
whatever simply means whatever is on that menu. Okay. I, we need to be careful when we look at things like these that Jesus is saying, he's also in a culture of a day, he's saying whatever, I think, right, there's context and limits to his words. Well, what are they then? For that, we've got to look at the rest of the Bible. And there's some limitations, if you like, to what whatever may mean what Jesus is saying. Here, here are a few. I'm not going to dwell on them really long. But James 1 verse 3, when you ask, when you pray, James says, you often do not receive. In other words, you think your prayers are not powerful because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Simply put, we're asking for the wrong stuff for the wrong reasons. Our prayers will not be powerful. Forget it. Nothing wrong with your prayers, nothing wrong with prayer, something wrong with you, what you're asking for. 1 John 5 verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that is, if we ask for anything, initially it sounds like the blank check, anything, and then he puts the limits, according to his will, he hears us. That is a powerful prayer. More about that in a bit. Even in Mark 11, Jesus says, whatever you ask for will be done for you. But then almost immediately, he, he knocks out the idea that it's a blank check. He says, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Look at your heart. Look at where your heart is at before God, before you pray, Jesus says. That will limit what prayers are powerful and which ones are not. Does whatever mean whatever? No, it doesn't. There are limits. Okay, that's the first word that we have to look at. Second word is the word believe. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and you'll get it. <laughs> it will be given you. I just want to be clear on that before I dig more into this. Very clear. Um, Jesus is not speaking figuratively here. I don't think so. I don't think this is one of those cases where you can say, I oh, was just using a word in a, in a certain way or... You know, he's using a metaphor, or this is hyperbole, or he's exaggerating. No, I don't think so. I think he meant what he said. I think to be perfectly clear, he said that whatever you ask for, if there is a 100% faith on the part of the person who prays that prayer, it will be done. 100% faith, 100% Guarantee whatever you ask for will be done. Okay. Now here's the question. The right question that we should ask. How is it possible for me to pray with that kind of faith? You know, if this is true, if that's what Jesus is saying, I have to conclude that many of my prayers are not answered because they're not prayed in 100% faith. I, I, I do not have that faith that Jesus is talking about here. Otherwise, what Jesus is saying is not true. And it is true. So the conclusion must be that I, my faith isn't where it needs to be at when I'm asking for the things that 
God hasn't given me, that hasn't been granted me. That's the reason. My faith is not at 100%. The question needs to be, why not? Why isn't it? Here's what I think the best answer to that question is. You can only have 100% faith in your prayer if you are 100% certain that what you're asking for is the same as what God wants to do in the situation you're praying into. You have to be 100% certain that what you're asking God for is in His will, is in what He intends to do with what you're asking for. If what, what He wants to do is 100% in line with your request, your faith can be out of 100% and your prayer will be powerful. Here's the formula, really, in terms of maths, if you like. I'm not a maths guy. I don't even know if that makes sense. But, but I think it's trying to illustrate what, what I'm trying to say. 100% certainty of the will of God can lead to a 100% faith, the type of faith Jesus is talking about in Mark, and it will mean a 100% powerful prayer. That's, that's the bargain. I think that's what Jesus is, 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 is intending to say to us in Mark without using so much words and explained by the rest of Scripture. Okay. Now here's the next question. We're, we're digging deep here today. Each thing we state begs another question. If this is true, the biggest question you now need to ask is, how can I know? What is 100% the will of God in what I'm praying for? Can I be so certain, so certain, so absolutely, without a shred of doubt, be so certain of the will of God in what I'm asking for that I can, in fact, pray with such a prayer? You know, many Christians, I think, often use the phrases that we use, uh, God willing, or maybe even the line, uh, if it be your will, that we have in prayer as, as sort of a way to say unintentionally perhaps that no, we can't ever really be sure <laughs> what God really wants to do in a situation. And so we pray in a way that never really is a prayer that, that has that carries that kind of faith that Jesus talks about. It's just, it's just true. I don't know why, but, but sometimes Christian culture has become that. We live in this world where we think we we may not be so sure, that sure, of what God wants to do and therefore our prayers are just weak prayers. It's wrong. There are at least five things that I'll share with you today that you can be sure. Every single time is 100% the will of God. This is what we see in the Bible. There's probably, it could be more. I'm going to, I reckon there's five that I could think of that I can find in reading and research that fits this pattern, okay? I'm going to share with them, them with you quickly. Number one, it is always 100% in the will of God that anyone 
who calls upon his name to be saved from their sins will be saved. You know, we could look at that verse earlier today and we could say, I could say to you today, if you pray, Jesus, I want to be born again. And between you and God, there's an understanding that that prayer is prayed with a sincere heart. You genuinely want that. (laughs) We do not have to doubt that. That mountain of whatever it is that's keeping you from God, that mountain will move. And by the way, that's the biggest mountain in our existence that ever moves. And it moves all the time. As God draws people to himself, never do you have to doubt that. Those who call upon his name will be saved. Romans, pretty clear. You no doubts about that. Number two. God will, and it's always God's intention, to change, to grow, I love how that came out in our discussion this morning, those who called upon him to look more like him. God, I don't want to be an egotistical jerk anymore. Make me more selfless and humble and serving the person my spouse wants me to be, the person you want me to be. Do that in me, please. I seek that. (laughs) He's going to do it. You can move that mountain with 100% faith. God, I, I don't want to hold on to the bitterness anymore. The unforgiveness in, in my past and, and what was done to me and what I've done. I want to be free from that. Can you, can you change me to, to forgive? You don't have to doubt that. You can pray that prayer with 100% faith and Everything Jesus says in Mark will be true for you. He will do it. You get what I'm trying to say. God's intention is to change you into his likeness, always. Number three, God will always supply whatever it is you need for the life that he intends for you to live. He may not supply you with what you want, He may not supply you with the comfort you're looking for. But for what he has in mind for your life, the purpose, the direction, values, whatever that includes, you can be sure of this. He'll give you what you need. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, all these needs, they will be given to you as well. Number four, God works all things for the good of his children. This man in the picture that you see there, his name is Father Damien. We heard about him in a movie that we watched, a few of us last year, in the cinemas here in Devonport. In the 1860s, he decided to devote his life to some 816 lepers who were put on an island... Uh, in the Hawaiian Islands, called Molokai. He decided that he would go and live among these lepers. They were all uh, 
basically secluded or, or, or um, quarantined by their own government on this island. There was no cure for leprosy at that stage. It was going to take your life. There was a guarantee. 816 of them put on this island basically to die, given very little, precious little, nothing almost to see them through to the end of their lives as they were dying. Father Damien said, I am going to go and live among them. He believed God has called them to that. He touched them. He endured the constant stinking smell of rotten human flesh as he cleaned their wounds and their houses. He made them as comfortable as they could be until the times of their death. He gave them proper burials. He taught them how to farm. He taught them how to build stuff. He gave them a purpose and a hope and above all he shared Christ with them and led hundreds of them to call upon the name of Jesus. And this is what this remarkable man writes shortly after he discovered that the diseases caught on to him. <laughs> he knew the leprosy would get him. He knew he was going to die. Some 20 years later, he writes this before his death. Its marks are seen on my left cheek and ear. My eyebrows are beginning to fall. I shall soon be completely disfigured. I have no doubt whatever of the nature of my illness, but I'm calm and resigned and very happy in the midst of my people. The good God knows what is best for my sanctification. I daily repeat from my heart, thy will be done. God used this man's incredible suffering. I have no doubt to bring about immense good. God used this, this, we know that he used this death, this illness, this suffering uh, to bring hundreds, if not by this day and age, thousands of people who lived on that colony to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And you may know in your prayers whatever is wrong in your life, Whatever suffering God may bring to you, he will not let go to waste. The prayer, God, use my suffering for your glory, is a prayer that he will always, always answer. Fifth thing. God will always assure his children of his nearness. That song we sang earlier was so beautiful in this. God, be near to me. Remind me that you're with me. Remind me that you're here. Not there, not far away, here. God will always remind you of that. Save me from my sins. Grow me to be fruitful in you. Give me what I need to serve your purpose for my life. Use my suffering for great good. Be near to me. These are the things that are always 100% in the will of God. This is what Scripture teaches us, what it shows us consistently from Genesis to Revelation. Now, 
You're doing well for a very deep sermon. Let me ask the next question. I said every point we make will bring us to a next question. Here's the next question. Does all of this mean that I should not pray for cancer to be taken away? Should Father Damien not have prayed for the leprosy to be healed in himself and the hundreds of people he was amongst? Should I not pray for that Christian boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife? Should I not pray for a child? Should I not pray for a job? And these things didn't feature in the list of five things that we can always be certain of. Does that mean I shouldn't pray for them? Does it mean that God does not want to answer those things? That's a very valid, very, very important question to ask. Here's the answer. You should pray for that. You should always pray for that. Why? Well, for a few reasons. Number one, because God is your father, and a father is a tough concept for you because of your past. A mother, a loving parent, he wants to hear from you what's the desires of your hearts. Like, I want to hear from my own children what's, what's the desire of their hearts. Whether I'm going to give them that, if it's in my power or not, I'd love to have that type of relationship with them. I want to know them. I want to share that intimacy with them. So for that reason alone, you share it with God. But more than that, God might want to give you what you're asking for. There are times when God does want to take the cancer away. If in that particular instance, it is what is going to raise the most glory for him and it's going to be best for that person praying the prayer, he will do it. He will. So we pray. The only thing I'm saying up to this point is that we cannot always be 100% certain in those prayers that it is the will of God. There are times much to our mystery, mystification, much to our pain that God does not cause those things to happen. And it's in those times that we pray the prayer that Jesus prayed. So beautifully, so brilliantly, before he went to the cross. Saying, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Father, this is what I desperately desire. I want this. If this is going to be what's going to bring you most glory and what's going to be best for me, give it to me, please. I seek it. I desire for it. I pain for it. And yet, I trust you. I give you my life. I know that you love me. I know that whatever is going to happen here, you're going to be with me. I know that whatever is going to happen here, you're going to turn this for good. You're going to let it pan out in a way that I'm going to stand in eternity with you and say, God, it was awesome what you did. Thank you. This is how we pray. This is, this is what we do when it comes to these incredibly painful, difficult things that, that we sometimes do not get the answer from God that we want. All right. Let me finish up. 
I want to take you on a bit of a detour in this conclusion. Uh, you may have wondered why, why did I include in the Bible reading you know, this bit about Jesus walking to the temple and on the way to the temple he wants to pick some figs off this fig tree. There's no figs and Jesus almost flippantly goes, cursed are you, fig tree. Die. Almost Seems like he's almost angry, like he's losing his temper. He then goes to the temple. There's a lot of stuff that happens there that makes him really angry. He flips over tables of people who are trying to make a profit from very complicated, but they're really abusing the place incredibly. And he says this line, he says, this should be called a house of prayer for all nations. People should come here and pray. People who don't know God are supposed to come here and find God and see God and experience God and encounter God. This is what it's meant to be here and you're wrecking that, he's saying. Then he goes back, following morning, they see the fig tree, the fig tree's dead, there's no fruits on it. And then Jesus launches into this little bit about prayer that we read, where he makes this promise about mountain-moving prayer. Now, I think what we're meant to see here is that there's a connection between fruitfulness and prayer. The fruitfulness of, of God's people in the Old Testament and prayer. Our fruitfulness as a church and prayer. There's, there's a connection. It's a and I couldn't figure out the connection, and I think it was a God thing that led me there this week. I, I read some statistics and some research, a bit of which I shared with you last week. I'll share it with you again. Now, just stay with me. McCrindle Research is a research company. They're not a Christian, Christian research and statistics company. This is non-Christians telling us this. Uh, it's not connected to a church. They talk about these things, among many other things, in their research, and they say to us, what are the top attractors to religion and spirituality for non-Christian people? What are the top things that repel them, that push them away? This is what unbelievers are saying. Right? I'll give you the top three repellents first. They're saying uh, philosophical discussion and debating ideas. Your non-Christian friend, by and large, the top thing that they say, don't debate with me and argue with me. I don't want to do that. Not interested in that. Don't give me a book to read. Not interested. Miraculous stories. I, I'm staggered by that. I really am. Hearing from public figures and celebrities who are examples of that faith. Don't tell me that because Bear Grylls is a Christian, it's a good idea for me to be a Christian. <laughs> uh, doesn't attract me. For the record, nothing's wrong with any of those things. Nothing's wrong with any of those, those things. It's not a sin. It's not a biblical teaching. It's just fascinatingly interesting that non-Christians are saying, these are the things that don't draw us. They, well, I'm not fast. The top three things that they're saying that do draw them to, to religion and spirituality, which, by the way, in the research is for all faiths. I'm just applying it to Christianity because that's what most people would have had exposure with. Okay, here's the top three things. You ready? Seeing people who live out a genuine faith. You're the deal. I know you and you're the deal. Your, your walk and your talk's the same thing. That really attracts me to what you've got, what you have to say. Number two, experiencing a personal trauma or life event. 
And I suspect how, in the unbelieving world's eyes, religious people process that and the role their faith plays when they deal with difficult things. They're saying, you know what, that to me, to us, is attractive. Number three, stories or testimonies from people who have changed due to their faith. I used to know you. I used to know what you were like. Now look at you now. And I go, wow. Something in what you're doing in this religion stuff, that's, that's interesting. I'm drawn to that. Okay, why this segue and statistics? You know what I found really fascinating when the penny dropped to me this week? The top three things that our unbelieving neighbours are telling us attracts them to our faith are within the top five things that God says is 100% within his will that he will always answer. I will always give you a genuine faith if you ask for it. I will always lead you through your suffering, your trauma, and make your faith be the decisive thing in those times in your life. I will always be with you. I will always let it work out for good so you can carry on with hope. I will always change you and give you a story of how you used to be and who you are now. You know what God is saying to us? It is 100% in his will that his church should grow. God has given us the most powerful of prayers to pray that we may be fruitful. That we may have our community look to us and say, we're attracted to that. And what they probably don't know is that underlying those things they're attracted to lies powerful prayer. We need to learn that we should pray with greater faith for the things that we can be 100% certain of. My hope is that that will grow in us. That we will be a church who continually understands what the will of God is. Not only understand what the will of God is, seek what the will of God is, want what the will of God is, and then go and pray mountain-moving prayers. That will bring that about. That's powerful prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are in this building this morning and I just want to acknowledge, first of all, the great hurt that perhaps sits in the chairs today of prayers that were not answered in the way that we have wanted them to be. Lord, we acknowledge that you are God and we are not. And there are often times where we do not understand your ways. Lord, in those times I pray that we will be like your servant Job, for whom seeing your glory and your greatness and knowing that in all things you know what you're doing will be good enough. Lead us there, I pray, when we sit in the pain and the brokenness and the hurt. And Father, second to that, I want to say thank you. <laughs> thank you that you have not left your church with rituals of prayer, but in fact given us the most powerful thing we could possibly have in our mission and our vision, and that is mountain-moving prayer. God, I pray again 
But those here who do not know you will call out to you and will find that the mountain is going to move. God, I pray that you will change us. God, I pray that you would help those who are suffering to hold on to your goodness. God, I pray that you'll supply needs that aren't met at the moment for those who are here, for the life you have for them. Give them what they need, whatever it is, practical, physical, spiritual, emotional, give it, we pray. And Father, finally, I ask for those who feel alone, maybe that you're distant and too far away, come near them. Show them that you're with them. And I thank you that these things will be done. Amen. Thank you, uh, music team.